Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the 119th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. We are at the footsteps this morning of Q3 earnings, and I'm enjoying life. We are. Yeah. Big bank set to report this week. I know JP Morgan uh, reported solid numbers this morning, so we'll see if that sets the tone for the rest of earnings season. We will see. Uh, So as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance uh, for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on October 12th. And the data is from Coifin. So S&P 500 index is up 1% for the month and up 15.8% for the year. The Dow up 1.58% for the month and 12.3% for the year. NASDAQ Composite Index up 0.6% for the month and 13.7% for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index is up 1.27% for the month and up 13% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 0.16% for the month of October and 5.3% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently sitting at 0.06%, uh, two-year treasury yield at 0.34%, and the 10-year treasury yield at uh, 1.58%. The 10-year keeps creeping up, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and you've seen that. Uh, financials, energy outperforming, tech underperforming over the past month or so. Yeah. Right. Um, big news headlines, current events from the week. Uh, Congress passed legislation to raise the debt ceiling uh, through early December. And this is one of the things that I was thinking about uh, earlier this morning, Matt. You know, I think the U.S. government, and I know that the Fed is supposed to be a separate independent body, right? Mm-hmm. They have a vested interest at this point to keep interest rates low, right? Absolutely. So I personally, and again, not that this matters, my opinion doesn't matter, but I don't see how they let rates go a lot higher than where we are today, because at that point, then the debt will begin to be a lot more expensive to service. So they have a vested interest to make sure money stays cheap, right? Yeah, they get, if they can get away with it, absolutely. It's funny. I have a um, one of my tweets, articles, and research from the week is about this specific topic. Okay. Well, we won't talk any further about it then. Yeah. Uh, Air travel issues continue across the country. Uh, Southwest Airlines uh, had to cancel more than 1,800 flights over the weekend due to staffing shortages. Uh, Their own staff and air traffic controllers and weather delays. Was uh, your brother Andy impacted by any of this? Uh, He started flying yesterday and uh, got rerouted. He was supposed to go, I think, to Charleston and got rerouted to Austin. But um, I think ultimately you got to realize how big Southwest is. Mm-hmm. You know, they're one of the largest domestic carriers in the U.S. And there's a lot of just economic impact of that magnitude of flights being canceled. I mean, you got to keep that in mind. Right. It's right. tremendous. 
Um, next oil prices rose above 80 over the past few days, which is the highest level since 2014. And Q3 2021 corporate earnings season begins this week, like we said, with banks kicking off the reports. Um, Q3 2021 earnings are expected to have risen 27.6% year over year, according to FactSet. So Let that sink in, that. Mark. I mean, I know last week I, I had a comment in regards to um, earnings and where they were in comparison to 2019. And if you look at this now, I mean, 27% year over year for the average S&P 500 company. That's tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of expe expected, though, right? Because yeah, of where we were last year. Recovery. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll let you kick it off with uh, research from this week. All right. Well, great minds think alike. So my first uh, tweet is in regards to the Federal Reserve, Mark. And this tweet was from Joe Fami. He has a blog called The Next Big Move. Uh, I'm going to read the tweet, um, and then we're going to discuss a couple of things. Okay. okay. So he said, and I quote, My guess is the Fed will announce their taper schedule in the upcoming November meeting, but it won't start until January of 2022. $120 billion per month in bond buying. Reduce $10 billion per month through 2022. No rate hikes till 23. Smoke them if you got them, he says. <laughs> now, Mark, uh, clients are hearing a lot of technical terms right now in the financial news media. So I think we need to break down a couple of these terms because I think they're going to continue to be utilized. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's just start off, Mark. What is the Fed? Yeah, so the Fed's a body that... Uh, has two mandates in this country is to uh, have maximum employment is number one and number two is stabilizing prices and in terms of stabilizing prices they kind of have two major levers that they pull is controlling uh, the fed funds rate which is the rate that banks lend and borrow to each other overnight to meet their demands um, and the second is, uh, you know, uh, buying bonds or flooding the market with liquidity if it needed to be. So I think the next question you have on here is what does bond buying mean? And the, the Federal Reserve can go out in the open market, purchase bonds to give cash to institutions or the government where they can fund their operations. And they could literally create this money out of thin air. Correct. Yes. Electronically, per se. Right. So the third thing is we keep hearing this term Fed taper, and I'll take that one, Mark. Fed taper, uh, listeners, has to do with when the Fed begins to slow down their rate of the printing of money, okay? So to be very specific, they are printing, as we speak, $120 billion a month. So what they're uh, being forecasted by this gentleman, and by the way, I agree with his synopsis is that beginning in january they're going to begin to slow down the printing of money start to taper it off at 10 billion a month so let's say in january it goes from 120 a month to 110 february it goes down to 100 and they're going to start weaning the market off of all this excess liquidity because believe it or not today october 2021 they're still doing that. Mm -hmm. So I want to throw this out there that that, in my view, is something that needs to happen, in my opinion. And it's been so translated and communicated to the market. Shouldn't be a surprise. 
Yeah, I agree. I don't think, um, well, I don't know if I, I mean, I don't like to make predictions, but I mean, do you think that we're ever not going to have like QE anymore? Because, like you know, open we're market so activity where the Fed's right, active. The mar- it's, we're yeah. so drunk on, you know, getting flooded with liquidity yeah, from the I, Fed. I, I think it's the Fed's new fancy tool where they don't have to change headline interest rates as much mm-hmm. i think it's their their new tool where they can manipulate things behind the scenes a lot easier right good way of saying it okay so one last thing what does it mean mark and i know you mentioned it just go like a little bit deeper when the fed changes interest rates because yeah. people are programmed the last three decades that that's how the Federal Reserve controls monetary policy. Yeah, so it starts with, like I said, the Fed funds rate, which is the overnight lending uh, rate that banks in this country lend to each other. So banks have obligations, right? So if they need money and they don't have the cash on hand, they'll borrow it from another bank to meet their obligations. Um, and this you know, funnels through the rest of the economy. So it affects... Um, other interest rates and other lending rates uh, that consumers use, right? Thing like Prime. Prime. Your prime all yeah, the time. Yeah, credit card rates. And, you know, and typically interest rates in this country tend to follow each other. And, you know, mortgage rates aren't directly tied to this. But, you know, when the Fed lowers rates like they did in 2020, you saw mortgage rates come down to all time lows. Um, and the same thing now mortgage rates are rising because of the anticipation of the Fed raising rates in the future. You got it. And so the bottom line for me, I agree with um, Joseph's timeline. I think this is my base case of how the Federal Reserve deals with monetary policy. And my opinion, assuming that happens in that way, that timeline, that's not bearish. No, yeah, because it goes back to the fact that I think that the Fed's confident enough that, you know, the market doesn't need that much liquidity and it could handle, you know, pairing back to where we were prior to 2020. And I don't know if we're going to get there or not, but I mean, I think that's the the end goal. I'm also impressed that the Federal Reserve is not viewing um, the current short-term inflation as long-term. Otherwise, they'd be pairing this back. They would be making the Fed tapering sooner and quicker in fashion. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. My next one is a global economic growth update. Now, this is a tweet from IHS Market, a very well-known research and analytics firm. This is from October 5th, Mark. Before I begin with this tweet, I would like to explain to listeners, what is PMI? Okay. The Purchasing Managers Index, or PMI, is an index of the prevailing direction of economic trends in the manufacturing and services sectors. It consists of a diffusion index that summarizes whether the market conditions, as viewed by purchasing managers of companies, are expanding, staying the same, or contracting. The purpose of PMI is to provide information about the current and future business conditions to company decision makers, analysts, and investors. The PMI is compiled and released monthly by the Institute of Supply Management, ISM. The PMI is based on a monthly survey sent to senior executives at more than 400 companies in 19 primary industries, Mark, which are weighted by their contribution to U.S. GDP. The PMI is based on five major survey areas, new orders, inventory levels, production, 
supply de supplier deliveries, and employment. The ISM weighs each of these surveys areas equally. The survey includes questions about business conditions, any changes, whether it be improving, no changes, or deteriorating. Lastly, the headline number for PMI is 0 to 100. A PMI above 50 represents an expansion when compared to the previous month. A PMI reading under 50 represents a contraction, and a reading of 50 indicates no change over the previous month. So I just wanted to kind of lay the groundwork and why I'm referencing this, Mark. Okay. Anything you'd like to add before I continue? Mm -mm. Okay. So this is their tweet. Global economic growth continued into September with the economic, I'm sorry, with the PMI edging up to 53. It was 52.5 in August to signal a slightly accelerated rate of expansion. Both input cost and output price inflation quickened amid ongoing supply chain issues. So um, we have the chart. Will you remind our listeners how they can access our show notes, Mark? Yeah. So if you go to uh, LinkedIn, Jessup Wealth Management, Facebook, Jessup Wealth Management, or Twitter at Jessup Wealth, uh, you'll be able to see all these charts and articles we're discussing. So the reason I wanted to highlight this is, again, this data to me is not bearish. Inflation is the key area that needs to be watched closely in the coming quarters, in my opinion. Mark, any thoughts you wish to share regarding this topic? No, I think it's, you know, I think it's encouraging. Um, it's also encouraging that, you know, the front page of Barron's were cargo ships off the coast of California. So I would like to think that the worst of the supply chain issue is over and, you know, this stuff starts to normalize. Yeah, you know, um, a good analogy for, for listeners is once financial related news starts hitting mainstream media, tends to be near a top or a bottom short term in the markets. Right, right, right. And it's kind of similar with this type of information. Yeah. And it's it's I mean, you can just do like a, a Google search of like Barron's magazine covers. And if you think back to like 07 or 08, you know, when they posted stuff about the housing market, that was like the low in housing prices. Right. Correct. Correct. So. Correct. Well, I got one last one for listeners. It's another market sentiment update. Now, you're going to love this one, okay? Because the trader I follow on Twitter, his name is Interested Observer. You follow some, some I was going to say, interesting guys, but yeah, I love the, love the name. You like the name? Love Even the name. Luke. Luke gets excited about this. <laughs> so this, is, uh, this tweet's from uh, the Interested Observer on October 6th. And I'm going to read it first, uh, and then we're going to go from there. So U.S. Investors Intelligence Poll. Bulls, 40% of the market, down 6% from the last reading. Bears, 22.5% of those polled, up about a half a percent. And those calling for a correction, 37%, and that's up about six points from the last. Statistics, lowest bullishness since April of 2020. Correction camp, highest since early March of 2020. What was going on in March and April of 2020, Mark? <laughs> not good stuff not good stuff you know depths of COVID in the market really you know getting hit hard right and then he had in parentheses 2008 changed a generation of investors okay mm -hmm. so there's more to unpack in this tweet than meets the eye mark in my opinion first this is an opinion slash comment I have about this tweet 
I like seeing such high levels of pessimism. Why? It tells me that investors have already positioned their portfolios, i.e. sold stocks, hence the majority of the selling has already happened last month in September. Lots of dry powder, i.e. money on the sidelines. Once buying begins, historically, those types of weak hands that sold in September tend to historically chase prices higher. Second opinion comment I have about this tweet. Correction camp highest since early March of 2020. Mark, what usually happens in the market when everyone's expecting something to happen? The opposite. The opposite. Third opinion comment I have about this tweet. Quote, 2008 changed a generation of investors, end quote. I bring this up because even after 13 years, investors still think corrections look like 07 and 08. Now, Mark, I know you've spoken about this before in the podcast. I would like for you to expand your thoughts on this specific topic, and then I'll chime in. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it 07 and 08 was just one of those events that, you know, obviously clearly scarred a lot of people. And everyone thinks, well, if we drop, you know, 10%, then we're well on our way to 50%, mm-hmm. right? Um and but, all those things are possible outcomes. Very. But it's not realistic when you look at historical data. Right. That every time it's going to do that. Yeah. And I would make the argument that, you know, you go back and look at each recession that's on record is all of them look extremely different. Um, you know, obviously, March of 2020 looked extremely different than 07, 08. Um, look different than the, the correction we had in like 16 yeah. when the China stuff was going on. Absolutely. Um, looked different than in the the winter months of 2018. I think mm-hmm. it was December of 2018 yep. when we had about Q4 a 20% correction. Friendly to the markets. Um, so, so if you go back and look at this stuff, you know, everything looks different. And, you know, in the span between even 07 and 08, not including it, you know, 2016, 2018, 2020. Yeah. Did they all seem like the world was ending at that time? Absolutely. But look where we are now. Right. So, you know, I think when people are talking about, especially their retirement portfolios, people are saying, I can't afford to lose this money. It's like, well, you're not really like permanently losing the money, right? I think people should reframe it and be like, I can't afford not to be invested. I think that's what we need to have the conversation about because everybody wants to have their cake and eat it too. And it's not realistic. No, it's not. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more here in a little bit, but you know, the average year, there's usually at least like a between a 12 and 14% correction in the markets every year. That's the price you pay to get market related returns. Right. Right. Not every year is going to be like the first eight months of this year where we didn't have a 5% correction in the markets. Yeah. So just my two thoughts on everything. It was interesting. I saw that tweet and immediately in my mind, I was like three key points. Boom, boom, (laughs) boom. And I'm like, I can't wait to unpack this in the podcast. Yeah, well, it's just like the, you know, it's kind of like the AAII, you know, sentiment survey that we talk about, you know, and obviously it's it's better when 
more people are bearish, I think. Yeah. And in, in listeners, the reason I, I tend to point these out when you have kind of points of, of stress in the market or when the market's kind of at a, at a short term low point is for me, I think they're good contrarian indicators mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just want to throw that out there and I'll send it over to you, Mark, to continue. Yeah. So the first thing is an article by LPL Research titled The Most Important Chart in the World. Oh, this should be good. So um, Ryan, our intern, actually sent this to me. Love that. So kudos to Ryan for that. Um, So again, this was by LPL Research on Wednesday, October 6th. And they said, and just like that, the calendar turned to October and volatility picked up in a big way with three consecutive 1% moves for the S&P 500 index to start the month. As we noted in our October preview, this month gets a bad rap for being a bearish month. In parentheses, it isn't, but it absolutely owns the title as the most volatile month. Everyone thinks back to October because that's when the market fell apart in a day in 1987, right? Mm -hmm. Volatility is the price of admission, explained LPL financial chief market strategist Ryan Dietrich, fellow Ohioan. Uh, Sure, we'd all prefer stocks to go straight up forever, but that isn't reality. Investors must learn to embrace and accept the eventual scares and bouts of volatility that are common even in the strongest of bull markets. As shown in the LPL chart of the day, since 1980, stocks experience a 14.2% peak to trough pullback on on average during the year putting the recent 5% pullback in perspective. And I think we're closer to like 7% now. Mm -hmm. In fact, 21 out of the past 41 years saw at least a 10% correction. Incredibly, 12 of those years finished in the green and 12 years gained an average of 17%. Who could forget last year's 34% bear market and move back to up 16% by the end of the year? In other words, big pullbacks can happen even in years that see outsized gains. So, you know, I just want to remind people that, you know, this stuff is going to continue to happen. It's not going to stop. Um, And I'm sure that there will be a point in history where buying the pullback or buying the drawdown won't work. And we will have a more prolonged bear market, 18 months, two years, whatever it's going to be. Um... So things just, you know, don't always work out to what happened in the most recent pullback. That's right. right. Because before 07 and 08, everyone thought a correction in the market looked like 00 to 02, which was prolonged close to two years. Mm -hmm. And again, this is the price of admission. Mm -hmm. This is the price of getting market related returns. You have to deal with those points where either your style of investment or the market is out of favor. It's just the way it works. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's difficult, I think, at times for investors because they obviously want to make the the returns as smooth or consistent as average. But there there are no consistent, smooth returns, right? That's right. You know? That's right. You know, we have averages, but that's because, you know, we're bundling data that's up 20, down 10, up 30, to get down that, five. To get that beautiful five and 10-year number, mm-hmm. average. Mm-hmm. I don't, love it. I'm glad you brought this up. Um, I think you're going to like this one, too. Okay. Taking one out of your playbook. I'm in. 
uh, it was an, uh, a blog post written by Nick Maguli uh, on September 28th titled The Broken Clock. Oh, uh, it's always right twice a day. I don't know if you saw this, Matt. I did not. But, Who, um, this is going to be Have you heard of, uh, oh, what's his first name? His last name's Kiyosaki. Robert Kiyosaki. Oh, yeah, that's Robert, the Rich Dad, Poor Dad thing. The Rich Dad, Poor Dad guy, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. author. So yeah. uh, this guy, Robert Kiyosaki, who you just said is the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, called for a giant stock market crash in October. Oh, okay, okay. Giant, and he posted this tweet on September 26th. He said, giant stock market crash coming in October. Why? Treasury and Fed short of T-bills. Gold, silver, Bitcoin may crash too. Crash best for picking up bargains after crash, not selling gold, silver, Bitcoin, yet have lots of cash for life after stock market crash. Stocks dangerous. Careful. <laughs> so Nick goes on to say, unfortunately, this isn't the first time that Kiyosaki has called for a major crash in the last decade. As Is he my new Dennis Cartman? Yeah, he might be. Okay, keep going. He might be. As soon as Kiyosaki sent his tweet, the replies started pouring in. Luke 10 ha has beautifully responded with a chart showing the increasing price of the S&P 500 alongside all of Kiyosaki's poor or excuse me, prior incorrect calls. So I, I really encourage people to go to the show notes on our social media to check out this chart because it's kind of mind blowing. He should change the name of his book to poor dad. <laughs> yeah. So he called for a crash on April 7th, 2011, May 23rd of 2015, July 30th of 2017, August 7th of 2018, April 17th of 2020, which was after the worst was already over. It was over. done. It bottomed on March 23rd. Called for a crash on October 28th of 2020, which was after the pullback in the fall. And then now. And it shows this it on a chart with the S&P 500. It's just interesting of how wrong he's been, right? So Nick goes on to say, I don't mean to pick on Kiyosaki because many others have made equally wrong predictions in the past, i.e. Dennis Gartman, Jeremy Grantham, so on and so forth. But Kiyosaki is the most popular person doing it. And as the chart above illustrates, he has been doing it for a long time. Given the size of Kiyosaki's audience, it's irresponsible for him to call for crashes so often, especially considering that he's trying to help people with their personal finances. I was just going to say that. But the real tragedy here is that one day he will be right. One day a crash will come and Kiyosaki will take a victory lap for all to see. Will his prior incorrect calls matter? Not at all. You can try to point out his flawed track, track record, but it won't make a difference. They will feel the pain from the crash after it happens, and then they will think Kiyosaki knew it all along. Oh, he got it wrong eight times before? Who cares? He's right now, isn't he? The saying goes that even a broken clock is right twice a day. Well, if that clock happens to predict the next time you could lose money, you might listen. It really doesn't matter that the clock doesn't work all the time, does it? Because I've stated before, failed predictions don't matter. They don't seem to have any impact on someone's brand. If failed predictions mattered, then people like Scott Galloway, John Hussman, and Robert Kiyosaki... <laughs> wouldn't have their audiences but they do they do despite being wrong so many times how can this be true 
because people don't care about the objective truth. They just want an answer. Any answer will do. And the more confidently you can provide that answer, the better. So while we're all enjoying a good laugh at Kiyosaki's expense today, he will have the last laugh in the long run, not because he will be right eventually, but because he knows that people want predictions. They crave them. But this is the oldest trick in the book. Financial companies have been doing it for decades and many still do. There's always a market for broken clocks. Just make sure you don't get sold one. I love that you picked this. I love the way that Nick framed it because I'm very like-minded in this. I know mm -hmm. you are too, Mark. Here's the danger side of this, is that when people like him eventually are right, it's going to happen like it did after 07 and 08. Michael Burry. All those people get all the FaceTime, depending upon how big the crash ends up being, for years and people will listen. Mm -hmm. They will give what these people are saying with more validity. And, you know, if I went back and I looked at Jeremy Grantham's predictions after 07 and 08, you know, Michael Lewis, go down the line. Mm -hmm. These people would, would have missed out on one of the greatest bull market runs since 2010. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, it's, it's sad. Yeah, it is. And, you know it's just one of those things that, you know, we, we again, I, I feel like I say this every podcast, we've talked about it before, but people crave a story and people want to be told what is going to happen in the future. And it's, that's just not reality. Seriously. I, like I, you know, when clients ask me, you know, what, what do you think the market's going to do over the next six months? I, my favorite answer is it's going to go up, it's going to go down, or it's going to go sideways. Accurate. <laughs> Those are the three, you know, you just, I think people need to get in the mindset that no one can predict what the market's going to do over the next six months. I think there's a fair amount of predictability over the long term, over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, because sure. we have history of what it's done. But over the short term, it's just there does no one any good to try to predict where things are going to be. Good point. You know, it's a good point. Um, especially with such outlandish predictions. Claims. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the sad part is that people, he has a large following because of the book that he wrote and people I'm sure are going to listen to what he's saying. Hmm. It's so, unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. This was a article from Cheryl Rawling on Morningstar, and it was eight financial do's and don'ts for the seven figure retirement. So Ooh. I just want to go through a couple of these and see what you think. All right. So she says, don't retire too early. The thought of retirement can be tempting, but there are emotional and financial reasons not to jump the gun. Make sure you have a life outside of work or retirement will be a nonstop boredom. Sleeping in and watching TV are not the keys to a happy retirement. And the thing that I want to comment on here is that, you know, we've learned this from our own clients, Matt, that people are way happier in retirement if they're staying busy. They have a part-time job. And they're they're volunteering. They're taking care of their grandkids. They're doing something. And it's also detrimental to your health if you're not doing a lot. Yep. So just from like the emotional aspect, I think it's really important 
to have a game plan of what you're going to be doing in retirement, because if you're sitting around not doing much, while that might sound good in theory when you're working 40 to 60 hours a week, usually ends up not being great. No. And I think what I end up seeing is a lot of our clients, when they retire, end up being more busy than they were when they worked. Right. And they're like, I don't know how I had time to work. Yes. No, um, I, I think for your health, staying busy and physically active is very important. But taking time to envision what that lifestyle is going to look like. Yeah. Especially if you're in a relationship where one of the individuals uh, was out of the uh, out of the house often working, you know, all of a sudden when you're around somebody um, 24 seven, quote unquote, it's different. It's different. Mm -hmm. It changes the dynamics. Yeah. It does. And a lot of people experience that in a minor way during the COVID shutdowns. Yeah. Right. Yep. So yeah, it, uh, definitely something you want to be thinking through for sure. Um, the second one is watching your taxable income level. She said, I found that many retirees don't understand how much their tax status can vary during retirement, depending on how they manage their sources of cash. For example, if you delay re required minimum distributions until age 72, you might be in a very low tax bracket until 72. Then boom. And then a high tax bracket when retirement distributions kick in. Rather than put yourself in a high tax bracket later on, it might be worthwhile to spend withdrawals by starting earlier. So my comment here is, you know, it really helps to have access to different buckets of of tax money, right? So you have tax deferred money, like a pre-tax 401k, you have after tax money, like a Roth IRA, and then you have taxable money, uh, like an individual account or like a, a joint account, account, like a brokerage account. And, you know, we can manipulate someone's tax bill to be a lot lower if they have multiple buckets, right? Yep. Because if you think about it, for a married couple filing joint, the standard deductions around $25,000, you can take 25 grand out of a pre-tax account virtually with no tax consequences, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you have money in a checking or savings account, or if you have money in a Roth IRA, obviously those are going to be tax-free, and then you have money that's in a taxable account. So there's ways to pull from these different accounts to have a really low tax bill in retirement rather than waiting to take money out of your pre-tax 401k because that is going to keep growing over time and you're going to have to take larger distributions, required minimum distributions from the pre-tax 401k or IRA, you know, and that your you taxable no income over. is going to be inflated. So definitely agree with that. Um, the next one is not taking Social Security too early or too late. There's a natural instinct often built around fear to start taking Social Security as soon as possible. But taking Social Security benefits before full retirement age can reduce your monthly benefit by up to 30%. Delaying benefits past your full retirement age increases your benefit by 8% a year through 70, age 70. Yet there can also be a valid reason for taking those payments sooner, sooner rather than later. So when should you start taking Social Security? It's generally best to wait until your full retirement age to begin taking benefits. Full retirement age is currently 66 for those born between 1943 and 1954, and it increases to 67 years old for those born later. 
Taking Social Security benefits earlier than full retirement age is often the wrong move if you plan to continue working. That's because earning income above $18,960 per year lowers the amount you receive from Social Security. If you're not planning to work, taking Social Security could be a good decision, especially if it will positively impact your lifestyle. Finally, Although these numbers say that delaying Social Security is beneficial, should you live beyond your mid-80s, nobody has guaranteed longevity. So she has this like little chart in here in this article that kind of makes the decision-making process a little earlier. So she says, asking yourself these three questions, will you work through full retirement age? And if you are, delay Social Security to at least full retirement age. Will benefits make a difference in your life? If the answer to that question is yes, take benefits as soon as possible. Do you have uh, plenty to live on and expect a long life? The answer is yes, delay benefits until age 60. And this is one of the answers. Age 70. Or excuse me, age 70, yeah. Um, this is one of the questions that people want a direct answer. They want, you know, Tell this me exact, this, exact this is exactly where I need to take Social Security. And it's so hard to do that. You know, none, none of us know how long we're going to live. None of us know what Social Security is going to look like in 30 years. So it's hard to do. So the best we can do is, you know, optimally plan around what each individual client has. Right. So, you know, there's never going to be the perfect answer for when you should take Social Security. There's stuff we can do that we can get pretty close, I think, but it's never going to be the most optimal because we don't know anyone's death date. Absolutely, Mark. And the other thing I, I thought about as you were sharing this uh, point from Cheryl's article, it's in regards to clients during points of political uncertainty tend to make a decision to take SSI early. It's mm -hmm. a general statement, but that's also a pitfall I think she didn't point out, mm -hmm. is that emotionally and psychologically, when the political environment with someone's personal beliefs, when they he or she sees things start to become uncertain, I see it makes people take it earlier than they probably normally would. So I want to lock in. I'm going to get what I can get before it's gone mm -hmm. type of type of. Uh, viewpoint. And so that's, that's one that I think that she didn't throw out there that that's something that really needs to be thought through a little bit deeper usually. Yeah, it does. And we, you know, just like we say, you know, don't let your political uh, views influence your investment portfolio. Also, don't let your political views uh, influence your financial planning. I agree, sir. I agree. Um, consider Roth conversions. The Roth IRA is the holy grail of tax planning. Although funded with after-tax dollars, it grows tax-free and withdrawals are tax-free, meaning that income is never taxed. Additionally, there are no required distributions from a Roth IRA. So if you have IRAs, the opportunity to do a Roth conversion should not be overlooked, even though you have to pay tax on the amount converted, which goes back to our conversation of having multiple different tax buckets with yes, your sir. investment accounts. Yes, sir. Um, next is not locking in expensive payments or financial commitments. And I know that you're, you're big on this topic, Matt. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Okay. She said, for example, if you start playing the bank of mom and dad role, your kids will continue to expect bailouts, thus eating away at your nest egg. 
So I think this is a big pitfall that we see people fall into because it's natural to want to help your kids, right? Mm -hmm. But you need to prioritize your retirement before you help them buy a new car or you help them pay off their student loans or you helping cover tuition, right? The, The reason this is near and dear to me, Mark, is over the last couple of decades, I have seen families make the decision where they've made their children's education such a, a bigger priority than their retirement that the, you know, the kids are graduating college with zero debt. And I have a client who's still doing a third shift job in their seventies. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's tough to see it from afar. Yeah. Even when you you've attempted to provide some, some guidance, it's, it's so hard to see it, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So don't put yourself in that position for sure. Uh, Don't write checks to charity. If you itemize, you might get a tax benefit from writing checks to charities. If you don't itemize, which is the majority of people in this country, or you're on the edge of itemizing, you get no tax benefit from charitable contributions, except for up to a $300 single above the line deduction this year. Better than writing a check to charity is contributing appreciated stock or mutual fund shares. Assuming the shares were held at least one year, the deduction is the full fair market value and there is no tax on the accumulated gain. Obviously, this strategy can only work with material contributions to charities that can handle stock transfers. Too bad we can't donate our time and write that off. I know. (laughs) I see what you did there. See what I did there? I did. Uh, and this is one of the more popular things that we've seen in our client base, Matt, is um, donor advised funds. Yes, sir. Right. So yes, it's like sir. a charitable uh, IRA. You get a deduction as soon as you contribute to the account. The money grows tax free and you can take money out by designating grants to charities of your choice over as long of a period as you wish. It's easy to set up through a local community foundation or a national provider. Although you can write a check to the donor advised fund, you save more tax wise by transferring appreciated shares or property. For those over the age of 70 and a half, a qualified charitable distribution or QCD is an option to make charitable contributions of up to $100,000 per year directly from an IRA. This essentially allows a deduction for contributions, even if you don't itemize. By paying the contribution from your IRA rather than deducting it as an itemized deduction, your adjusted gross income is reduced, which can also lower your tax on Social Security income. You can even use your RMD for a qualified charitable distribution. So again, another option, if people don't need their RMD for the year, they can do a QCD, which is doing good by giving to charity and reducing your taxable income for the year. Agreed. So um, there are options, but I would say among our client base, the most use that we see is a QCD followed by donor advised funds. That would be the priority order. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, and last but not least, she just says, consult the financial professional. I'm not just saying this because I've been a tax planner and a financial advisor. As you can see from this list, even people with relatively simple finances have a lot of complex decisions to make. Plus, it's often the case that one financial decision affects another aspect of a financial plan, especially when it comes to taxes. True. 
You should also utilize your advisor's advice and or management for portfolio investments. First, and this is what I love, because you should have better things to do than manage your investments. And second, a qualified professional will usually do a better job for you in the long run. Professional management will ensure that your portfolio is not too aggressive or, or conservative, maintain a diversified portfolio, provide tax management, and advise you on your spending budgets on an ongoing basis. And the only reason why I wanted to highlight that again, Matt, is that, you know, people may think they want to do this stuff on their own in retirement, but then they get to retirement. And like we said, most people are too busy and then they can't handle it. And then they're already starting in the hole. Um, you know, it's just, again, one of those things that if, if I don't do it for a living, I want someone else who does do it for a living to manage it for me. Well put, right? Well put. Um, so that's all I had, Matt. Um, probably leave it there for the week. Anything else before we wrap up? I do not. Okay. Well, thanks for tuning in everybody to episode number 119 of the independent advisors podcast. We will see you next week for episode number 120. See you soon. Thank you for listening to the independent advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the independent advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.